I'm confused. All I hear from you, you spineless cowards, is how poor you are. How you can't afford my taxes, my protection. And yet somehow, you've all managed to find the money to hire a professional gunfighter to kill me. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis, and this is episode number 193. The movie this week that we watched is The Quick and the Dead from 1995, and joining me to talk about it, because he had never seen it before, from the Joystick and Mouse podcast, it's Jay Dimes. How you doing? What's going on? It's been a while since you've been on. I was looking back over like you know the guest list, and I realized it had been almost two years oh, since wow. you were on. It was, uh, it was did like we January. do the contender? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And that was January of 2020, and I'm like, I gotta get Jay Times back on here. It's been too long. Hey, thanks for having. Me. And uh, so you had never seen The Quick and the Dead before. You were were you familiar with it much? No. Okay. No, I. When I when I looked it up, the kind of like the little poster picture thing that they give mm-hmm. sounded familiar. And I think maybe I remember somebody referring to it as a Sharon Stone movie okay. at one point. And so, like, I, I kind of remembered it. But, yeah, it had never never been largely on my radar. I was very surprised at the number of people that were in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely are going to get to this cast uh, because it's it's amazing. Um, this did come out in 1995, uh, directed by Sam Raimi, um, written by Simon Moore. And it came out right in the middle of kind of a mini renaissance of Westerns. We hadn't had a ton of Westerns for a while. Um, there was a couple here and there, uh, Silverado in the 80s, stuff like that. Three, uh, three Amigos I would count as a Western, um, Western yep. comedy, but it's a Western. Mm-hmm. But Unforgiven came out, and that kind of, because it, it won so many awards and it was such a well-received movie, it sort of gave a little a little life to Westerns for a couple of years, and we ended up getting Tombstone, Wyatt Earp, um, uh, and this movie, and there was a, like one or two other smaller ones. Um, there was also The Young Guns right around that same time, Young Guns, Young Guns yeah. 2, and so this one is well. I have to throw my favorite western in there also, uh, Posse. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the fact that this one is lesser known kind of makes sense. It's not Tombstone. It's not right. Wyatt Earp, and it's not Unforgiven. It's a little. It's not quite a out and out comedy, but it's also a little. I don't. It's hard to call it lighter. Because it's definitely gunfights and a lot. The, the body count's like 18 in the movie. So it's not like it's right, a small. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's but there's more humor in it. Yeah. It's a lighter tone than something like mm-hmm. Unforgiven or even um, Tombstone. But the cast is outstanding. Uh, you mentioned Sharon Stone right off the bat. And this is one of my favorite Sharon Stone roles um, for me. Now, a lot of people like to point to uh, Basic Instinct. Uh, as a big role for her, and it was. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. Lo- 
it's weird. I don't have like a a thing where I just love Sharon Stone in movies, but when she pops up in something, I remember her in Sphere, which that movie isn't great, but she was actually pretty good in it, I thought. Um, you know, my my favorite Sharon Stone movie is The Specialist, oh, which I one. think is like a great combination of her being a likable character and them not really asking her to do too much. That's a very good one. Um, she was great in Casino, which came out the same year as this. Yeah. Um, but like I never got into uh, Sliver was one of hers that I just it wasn't really never on my saw radar. It. Um, I saw Basic Instinct, but again, it's not really like a, it's not a movie that I go to. It's just, you, it, yeah. it has memorable moments, but you know, <laughs> one in particular. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but there's something. Sliver has one of the Baldwin brothers in it, right? It's, uh, Billy, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the thing with this, you mentioned likable and it's interesting, interesting because, She's not asked to do too much in this script. No one no one really is asked to do too much, which I kind of like. It's very it's got a, a pretty good ensemble thing going on. In fact, I would uh kind of go so far as to say like I want more out of a lot of them. Um but it's weird because they try to make her a sympathetic character, but at the same time she's a little bit unlikable in this character of the lady or as we find out later Ellen, which brings me to a point that was kind of odd um but she's almost she's teetering on being unlikable with the way like the way she acts towards the young girl who's kind of fangirling over her Mm -hmm. um the way that she kind of tries to brush off court uh quite a bit after finding out that he rode with um uh rode with herod Mm -hmm. um gene hackman's character so she borders on being unlikable, but they do. She's got enough charisma, and they do just enough to. Plus, with the how sympathetic her backstory is, um, it does help to to kind of bring her back up. Um, but I thought that she was really great. And uh, Ace in the chat mentions her coat belongs in a museum because that that was a legitimate uh, old west leather jacket that was like a hundred years old when they made the movie. Oh wow! Yeah, and that thing looked. Like it weighed about eighty five pounds. I can't imagine that was easy to wear, but uh, but it looked great. She she pulled off this role really well. I will say that she never she never became too much of the vengeful. Um, like I don't know, I never strayed too far from sort of who she was when she started the movie. Um, if that makes right. sense, and and I liked yeah. it. I thought that she was good. I I really appreciated the twist at the end yes i didn't see that coming at all no in fact some trivia that i looked over said that the original ending wasn't just wasn't quite gelling and so they brought in and supposedly it was joss whedon came in and did a quick rewrite at the end i don't know what he rewrote it's hard to say but i feel like i'm like i'm with you i i I did not expect that the first time that I saw the movie. And even if I don't watch it for a a while, like I kind of forgot about that part until that scene started up and that last flashback. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that you say that about Whedon working on it, mm -hmm. there are parts that I could see are Whedon esque in the way that he handles uh, lady. Yeah. 
whose name is Ellen, although only one person ever uses it, and it's not the person you would think it would be, which is the doctor. Because the do- they never the doctor the old man doctor never refers to her by yeah. name. It's only Court who does, which we never got a scene where she told him her name was Ellen. In fact, there was a deleted uh, sex scene that they shot with Court and Ellen um, that they cut out of the movie because it didn't really fit. And I'm assuming somewhere in there is when they had it, but it it's like okay, I get it. It, it doesn't fit like this. It doesn't belong in this movie. There's yeah, Barely. he's already fallen down as a preacher. Like they didn't need to do <laughs> right. No, <laughs> no, and and it doesn't. It just doesn't fit. Like their their relationship isn't really romantic either. Yeah, you know. So, um, but yeah, I just I thought that was funny when he starts calling her Ellen, and and I I always forget that, and I'm like, wait a minute, when did when did he learn her name? We missed right. we missed that scene, but um, Court, who's played by Russell Crowe, and it's funny because I did not plan to do Russell Crowe movies back to back. Uh, but I did Gladiator last week, and now this movie this week. And such a great movie! Yeah, and this was Russell Crowe's first American film. He had done uh, all he had done so far had been Australian TV series, and uh, he really made a name for himself in an Australian film called Romper Stomper uh, in 1992. He um, yes, I've seen that, and so that was kind of his breakout role in terms of getting any notoriety and uh, and noticed. And then this was his first American movie. And number one, I think his accent was fine. Um, mm-hmm. He definitely didn't sound like an Aussie doing a, an American accent. It wasn't really a Texas accent, but he sounded American. So I was fine with yeah. that. Um, and I thought he was good too, playing that part. It's one of those. It's another one though. Uh, this is going to become a theme for this episode for me. I want more. I want like more of the story of these people. Um, yeah. Because Court, I thought, was, again, an intriguing character. He's a former outlaw who gave all that up to become a preacher and starts a mission somewhere that they drag him out of and bring him back to this, and he wants nothing to do with the killing um, and is forced into it and eventually breaks down and does it in a really great scene. And then he's he's all in and kind of ending it, tossing the marshal uh, badge to him and sort of being like the laws back in town. I liked that. That was a very, very nice, like, you know, Hollywood Western ending. You know, I thought that that scene was funny because I was just thinking like, she can't just make somebody a marshal. <laughs> like, like it's not even a sheriff's badge. Like it's right. a, it's a, he's a U.S. Marshal. Like he's a federal, <laughs> you can't. Yeah. I, I thought that, I thought it was funny that that's like the last shot. And I was like, that doesn't really, that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up once anybody of any authority shows up in town. Although, right. yeah. given what happens throughout this movie, I don't think the authorities really care about this town because there's an, nope. there is clearly an escaped convict in that town and we didn't right. see a single Pinkerton or anybody uh, yeah, at all. Nah, no, nobody and, was coming to look for him. <laughs> Which, uh, that was great. I want to get to him. That was Mark Boone Jr. that played Scars. And So, I'm a huge Sons of Anarchy fan. Mm-hmm. And so I remember Mark Boone Jr. from Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. And I watched this whole movie trying to find somebody's face <laughs> that looked like him, and I never saw it. And I was like, who, who is he? He, this is a younger, younger him and without hair. That's the thing that throws you, right? 
because Much he slimmer. has he's slimmer <laughs> he's got his head shaved and he barely has a beard right yeah. i'm so used to yeah. seeing mark boone jr looking like me with like a big old beard and long yeah. hair you know i remember him that was what he looked like in um batman begins yep um and uh even like memento he had that kind of longer mm-hmm. hair going on he was more clean shaven but he still looked like mark boone jr and he's just one of those great character actors that when he pops yep. up in something, he just dives into it. And this was great because he got the prosthetic and he had like the one blind eye and the scars over his mm-hmm. face. But again, another character, it's like we got a page out of his book. He's escaped Khan and that's all we know. Yep. And obviously he was probably imprisoned for killing someone. But <laughs> that's like, that's it. We don't know because he said he was sentenced to 35 years. He left after three days, uh, and nobody came looking for him, which was the thing. I was like, really? No, no one. Nothing at all. No one. Um, and he smells bad. That's the other thing we know. He smells yeah. really bad. Uh, but it's just it's one of those, like, it's great to get these character actors. that We had uh, Tobin Bell playing um, Dog Kelly is his character's name. He's in essentially two scenes. He's right at the beginning of the movie where uh, – He's he's digging for his treasure, whatever it is he's looking for. Yeah. And then shoots at uh, Sharon Stone's character as she rides up, but ends up getting the crap kicked out of him and chained to a wagon wheel. And when he shows up in town with the wagon wheel still, like the part of it. But that was Tobin Bell. That's Jigsaw. And I didn't recognize, I saw his name pop up and then I didn't recognize him at first. Because again, you know, it's 30, almost 30 years ago. He's a lot younger, but he doesn't, he didn't have the same, he didn't have that voice thing going on. His voice wasn't super deep. And so it took me a little while to notice him, but like putting people like Tobin Bell, Mark Boone Jr. in these small roles really bumps up your, your movie, in my opinion. I also enjoyed seeing Keith David. Oh yes. Another one of my favorite actors um, pop up in this. Talk about a movie full of amazing voices. Too. Mm-hmm. Tobin Bell, yep. Keith David. You put Keith David in something, I'm already interested. Like that dude can be in anything. It doesn't matter. And yep. yet again, he's Sergeant Cantwell or Cantrell. And all we know is he's a gunfighter, but like, okay, so he was a sergeant. So he's probably in the in the war at some right. point. Like, and he's great. He's got his that ridiculous pipe of his <laughs> was so good. And just his introduction is one of my favorites. And I captured yeah. that, and I'll play that later because his introduction is just so perfect. But yeah, uh, he was he was wonderful in it, and then of course he goes out. I I also do wish we had gotten maybe like one gunfight with him before he goes out the way that oh. he did, just so we could yeah. kind of see how good he was. Oh um, yeah, he caught it bad. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> well, well, I definitely want to talk about these gunfights because they are. There's something else. But yeah, seeing Keith, like again, that's another one of those. Keith David, you put him in something and it just makes your movie better. He doesn't have to be a lead. He doesn't yeah. have to be in every scene, but he makes he makes the movie, he, he elevates it. It's like um, having uh, Pat Hingle as Horace the bartender, you know, he who I will always remember as Commissioner Gordon because I grew up with the 1989 Batman and Pat Hingle was Commissioner Gordon in that. Oh, you know what? I hadn't put that together. Yeah, and so he looked familiar, but I hadn't. Fi- I I didn't place that. That's that's where yeah. he, that's the, where he was from. 
if he had said something like he gave us the signal, you might have remembered because that was <laughs> that was his last line in Batman. But like again, he's he's awesome, and he, his introduction is great too. When Sharon, when the lady comes in asking for a room, and he's like putting liquor away on the shelf and doesn't even turn around, just says "Horrors are next door." And she's like, excuse me? And he says it again. And oof. Then he gets the the stool kicked out from under him and he falls that whole way. And he's like, all right, let's let let's let's get the lady a, a, a nice room. Right. You know? And and she ends up helping him out later, which was great, with her, with his daughter. Um, which was a, a cool little kind of side plot that. <laughs> that part threw me off so bad. I was like, you just pimping your daughter out? Like Yeah, it was it was rough, but it was that final scene. So it was the scene where they where she finally confronts Eugene, that's the character. Yeah. Um that you realize that Horace doesn't want his daughter involved the way that she is, but he kind of is just scared to do anything about it. He's been bullied into it. Which Eugene was played by Kevin Conway. Except in that scene, and I, I wrote down uh, a note of this, I, for a second, thought that it was Stephen Root, who was, um, he's a character actor you've seen in a ton of stuff. He was uh, in Office Space. Um, he's, you okay. know, my stapler. Um, mm. He was in News Radio uh, was him. Um, he's been in a ton of stuff. But for a quick second, I thought it was Stephen Root, and it threw me. Because the the character was so just just gross. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I know Steven Root's a really good character actor, but no, uh, oh no, that's not him. Okay. Phew. <laughs> good. Um, but yeah, that guy was just, I mean, just a straight up bully and basically forced himself into that position. So Sharon Stone finally puts an end to it. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like earlier on, it's just like, okay, he's just letting his daughter kind of, no, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, Lance Henriksen is ace. Uh, it, he was great for the short time yeah. that he's in it. Uh, and every good Western has to have that character, right? That guy that, because think about the old West, you could just make up any story you wanted and 90% of the people yeah. are never going to know that it's fake. So right, right, right. those people just were all over the place and, and Henriksen plays him to a T like he plays him perfectly. He's just, charismatic enough to get away with telling these stories mm -hmm. and he can win over everybody. But like Ellen doesn't, uh, doesn't buy his, his shtick for a second. Like this, when he first walks in and he's got his deck of cards and he's like, you know, he's used that line before about the special pack of cards and people are always wowed right. by it. And she's just like, she doesn't care at all. So it's like her and Herod were the only ones that didn't buy his stories. Um, but he was, I, I like Lance Henriksen a lot. And that was a good look for him with the long hair and like that yeah. pencil thin mustache. Pencil mustache, was, yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous and I loved it. I remembered his fight with Herod being longer for some reason. And I don't know why. And I think it was that I conflated when he gets shot in the hand and you see the bullet hole. Yeah. And then when um, Keith David gets the bullet hole through his head. For some reason, I conflated those two things to where we looked through Ace's hand and through that hole. Mm. Um, but he, sadly, Ace, not only does he get just taken right out by by Herod, 
but then he has all of his stuff stolen. And they, they just leave him in his skivvies in the street. Like, which is very Western. It's yeah. very much like the thing that would happen. They were the whitest long underwear I've ever seen. Because when they first took his boots off, I'm like, he's got some really white socks. And then they, they show them all like gang pile on him. It comes back and he's just wearing nothing but long underwear. I'm like, oh, wow, it's a one piece underwear. Okay. Yeah, they pulled those fresh out of the bag <laughs> yeah. uh, for the scene. <laughs> yeah, they did. I want those boots, though. Those boots were awesome with the playing cards on the side. Yeah. Those were great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Lance Henriksen, another one, another great character actor. You pop into stuff and he's just super fun. Um, but uh, we haven't even gotten to. Uh, okay, so we got to talk about Leo. Yeah. As the kid. Uh, this was not his first role. This was just after What's Eating Gilbert Grape. I think they started filming right after What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Um, but he was 21 when he made this movie. I didn't realize that there was such a big age difference between Leonardo DiCaprio and Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone is older than I thought she was, Mm -hmm. than I thought she is. And... Leonardo, I think, is y- younger than I thought he was. <laughs> yeah, he so he was 21. Sharon Stone was about 36 yeah. or so yeah, when I they made this. I think there's 14 years between the two of them. Yeah, and she was a big reason why he's in this movie. Yeah. Um, she saw him. She wanted him in it bad enough that she uh, reportedly she paid his salary for the movie to have him in it because huh. she's a co-producer so she had some say in what was going on with things um and that's the the story goes that she had seen him in something else and wanted him in this movie enough that she agreed to pay his salary to have him in it um one of the rumored names was matt damon at the time for the kid um which would have been he was like 24 25 so he's a couple years older but still sort of that same age range but there was something even at 21 years old, there was a charisma that Leo had on screen. That yeah. Oh, yeah. He, just, he, eats, he eats up every scene he's in. Oh, big time. He, he's just, he's great. And he, he brings an energy that the movie needed. They, that, that character mm-hmm. needed to bring that energy. And to have him in uh, a few scenes and then, you know, the, the whole uh, dynamic with him being um, John, or is it John? John Harrod's kid. Um, Gene Hackman's character but Hackman's character never acknowledging that like he never out and out acknowledges that it's his his son so that was the thing I I wasn't I don't think they did real well in the movie the only reason I realized that is because I was looking at the at the Wikipedia cast list Mm-hmm. Before or while I was watching the movie to try to keep the character straight. Sure. And I realized that they had the same last name. Okay. But by other than that, I don't think the movie does a great job of really leading you in that direction. Well, there is the scene where uh where Lady wakes up in the room with him, with Kid. Mm-hmm. And kids like making breakfast or whatever, 
And he's talking about all, all the stuff they did the night before because Kid is sort of, it's funny, he's like a, he's almost like Ace Hanlon in training. Like he's going to be that guy if he if he gets old enough where he has all the stories because right. he's got a story for everything. He's talking to, all talking up about everything they did the night before and she's like, the last thing I remember is you throwing up behind the bar. So, um, but he says at that point that uh, that it's his dad. Like he just out and out says, well, you know, he's my father. And then later on, but you're, I guess I can see in that nobody else talks about it, right? He does, but no one else in the town really says anything. And it feels like, it feels like the thing that he would be telling like everybody. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a thing in a small town. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you go to any small town, everybody knows everything, right? Yeah. Like, even if even if it's not said, like, discussed outwardly in public, you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like something everyone would know. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I just didn't feel like, like, you could almost take him saying that is just another lie. Like, another story he's telling without some some sort of other corroboration. Like, it almost seems like something that would have made sense to have, um, to have court, like, mention in passing. Like, somebody who, who like, knows mm, yeah. John well enough to, like, okay, like, this, that would make sense for him to know, even mm-hmm. if, and maybe say out loud, even if the rest of the townsfolk were too scared to do it. That's a good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. It, it it and it's just a bummer for the kid who apparently all he wants is uh is Herod's like respect and he right. never gets it. And then even after he dies, Herod's like, "Well, it was never proven he was my son." Like he can't even acknowledge it after he shot him and killed him. Like that's just how much he didn't care for the kid at all. Um but hell of a performance from DiCaprio. I mean, He's chewing up scenes. He's great. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. He just got that. He's got that uh, youthful arrogance, that that type of arrogance that you only get when you don't know any better. Right. Yeah. 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 Like no one. You can tell him that he's not the fastest. He just doesn't understand that. He doesn't believe it because no one's shown it to him yet, Uh, which is why his line right after the shot is great. Shit. That was fast. Right. So good. Um, and we've danced around it. We've mentioned him enough times, but Gene Hackman as John Herod. Oh yeah. Boy. Gene Hackman does not get mentioned enough when people talk about great, the great American actors. I don't think, I don't think he gets mentioned enough. I, I think even as much as he gets mentioned, it's not enough because think of Gene Hackman in a movie and think of him not giving you 100% and giving you a great performance, regardless of the movie. It doesn't matter. And, I mean, this is a man who he stopped acting in 2004 after Welcome to Mooseport, which, whether you like that movie or not, he's good in it. I never saw that one. Um, But he just just brought it all the time. He was 65 years old when this movie came out. When when The Quick and the Dead came out, he was 65 years old. And... He just kills it. And it doesn't matter if it's playing comedy in something like Royal Tenenbaums. 
if he's doing this type of movie, if he's doing heist, um, great you movie. know. Uh, the replacements he's great in. I love him in Enemy of the State. Um, yes. One of the great, not only American actors, but also yellers. Like the, it takes yeah. a certain, there's a certain, a certain thing to be able to like yell and kind of um, like angry acting, but in a way mm-hmm. that never feels like you're overdoing it. Also to add to your list, uh, Crimson Tide. Oh, Which is is one of one of one of acting's best things is you get to see him and Denzel Washington go at it in Think, a small space. Yeah. So 1995 alone released The Quick and the Dead, Crimson Tide, and Get Shorty, and he was in all three yeah. of those. Like, yep. that's nuts. But he got to play against Denzel Washington. That was amazing. Him and Will Smith was uh, was great because that's. For 90s Will Smith, Enemy of the State is one of my favorites because it wasn't him being Will Smith. Yep, yep. Um, which it I really enjoyed. It also gives enjoyed. us a, uh, a Lisa Bonet sighting, which I'm always happy about. It's, there's nothing wrong with that ever. Um, but he, I mean, Wyatt Earp he was in is Nicholas Earp. Uh, Little Bill in Unforgiven, which yep. I hadn't seen The Quick and the Dead in long enough. I'm like, is he Little Bill in this? Because I just saw Unforgiven for the first time like a year and a half ago. And Still so haven't watched that movie. I kept thinking his name in this was going to be Bill. Uh, I knew it was, I knew it wasn't little Bill, like, but I thought maybe they had the same, like Bill, whatever. And I'm like, no, it's yeah. not Bill. It's John. But nobody like, so yelling on screen in that kind of angry style of acting can be really difficult to pull off in a legitimate way, but he always seemed to be able to do it. I do remember in high school, my friends and I had a theory that, we never got Samuel L. Jackson and Gene Hackman in the same movie because the movie couldn't, like, the world couldn't sustain that. That level of the two of them yelling at the same time would just be too much. But we did get something close <laughs> from a yelling perspective. Heist. Because mm. I think Delroy Lindo. Oh, yeah. Can give you that same type of, that same type of yell. And they have that same, that same smoothness. Mm-hmm. Oh, Delroy is another one of my favorites. Delroy Great is, too. he does not get enough credit. That's a guy who's underrated. Like mm-hmm. Delroy Lindo brings it. He brought it in Congo. And that movie is bonkers. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not good, but like he's awesome in it. I mean, who can yell, stop eating my sesame cake in a way that sounds not only funny, but also threatening. Like right. you want to yeah. laugh, but you're also going to put the cake back down. Right, because, right, yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, just Gene Hackman. I I have so many notes here of just how how good he is at being a bad guy, mm-hmm. and a menacing bad guy. And he Hackman has a charisma that lets him go from like he can smile and he can deliver a line and he can do it exactly the same way and have it read in different manners uh, for the scene, like. It can be, he can do the same thing and it can be endearing or it can be frightening. And he can flip so quickly too. And he just does so It's why so he much. was an amazing Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. He plays Lex Luthor, he, he played him great. Also, one of my other favorite Gene Hackman sightings is Runaway Jury, which I love that movie. It's that, one of the two John Grisham books that he did. Um, I like him better in Runaway Jury than I did in The Firm. Uh, but yeah. 
which was his next to last movie. It was the movie he did right before Welcome to Mooseport. That's right. I have not, uh, boy, it's been a while. Um, so I don't remember a ton about either Grisham one that he did, but look, if it's Gene Hackman, it's going to be good. It's just, I look through his list of movies and I just, every single one of them that I've seen, even if it's a movie I don't love, I, I can't say anything bad about him in any of them. He did a lot of really good movies at the end, like under suspicion, mm -hmm. like on his tail way out. You know, he gave us a lot of really the Mexican. Yep. Uh, a lot of really good stuff. And and varied, too. Like he could do yeah. under suspicion mm -hmm. or he could do heist and he could also do the replacements or. Yes. Um, I love that movie. I probably shouldn't. But I love it. <laughs> the replacement, the birdcage. <laughs> he is hilarious in the birdcage, like. Because he's the perfect foil for Robin Williams and Nathan Lane and their manic energy for him to be the the straight man to the to the crazy man in that sort of scenario. And he's so good in The Birdcage. Um, yeah. And you mentioned Crim Crimson Tide, which is a movie I haven't thought about enough lately, and now I want to watch it again. Also a movie with, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Aragorn. Um, why can't I think of his name now? Oh, um... Blah. Vigo? Vigo? Yes, Vigo. Mortensen, Mortensen yes, Vigo. that's it. Sorry. Um but uh yeah, just and, and Hackman in this as as John Harrod is just just terrible. Yeah. He's such a good villain and he just mm -hmm. he's not scared of anything, which is great, which is why the final gunfight is so good because he's just a little bit scared. Like he knows Court yeah. and he knows Court is good enough to beat him. And it's just enough to like to to give him a, a slight bit of pause. Um, it's also why he doesn't why he never sees the end of coming. Right. Because he's really focused on it being court. Yes. And that's not his true problem. No, no, it's not. It isn't, but he didn't know his true problem because he never saw her coming. He didn't know who she was. Right. Yeah. Um and yeah, I just oh man, I can't get over how much I like him. And this is, you know, a couple years after he won an Oscar for Unforgiven. And watch that movie because honestly, like that movie is real. It it's sort of one of those where it's been talked up and hyped up so much you almost don't think it can live up to the expectation. And then when I watched it for the first time, I was like, no, this does. This meets it. Yeah, part you know, part of the issue for me is that I am not a huge Western fan. Um I've watched more of them probably in the last five years than I have um, traditionally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's always been on the list. Unforgiven, Tombstone, always been on the list. Just haven't, Westerns, haven't pulled the trigger to do it. Yeah, Westerns are interesting for me because I, growing up, I would have told you I'm not really a Western fan. And what I found out was it's not so much that I'm not a Western fan. It's that for a period of time there were so many of them made in Hollywood and so many early movies were Westerns. And it's sort of like, like Westerns at one time were like what comic book movies are now, where just so many of yeah. them getting made. And mm -hmm. it got to a point where they became very cookie cutter. And what you find is the good ones can kind of bubble up to the top. And this movie was Sam Raimi's sort of love letter to spaghetti Westerns and uh, Sergio Leone. Yeah. And those types of movies. 
And that was a, a thing where when Sergio Leone came along and started doing his Westerns, it changed the way Westerns were being done. And those tend to be a little bit better. But you're, for me, it's I don't love a movie because it's a Western, but I find that a lot of movies I really like, um, they somehow uh, these Westerns keep popping up. Unforgiven, Tombstone, Open Range is a great one with Kevin Costner. Um, that's a good got, Kevin Costner movie. Hmm. Said I love a good Kevin Costner movie. Yeah, and and it's definitely one. It's a slow burn, um, which can sometimes be real dull for people if you're not if you're not a Western fan. Um, Open Range can feel the first bit of it can really feel like it drags, but it's worth it. Um, but what I've noticed too is like the style of westerns in storytelling has over the years infiltrated other genres to where you get your space westerns and you get, you know, movies that are not set in the old West, but they're a Western, they're a Western of sorts. I mean, look at Yellowstone. Yeah. Yep. Even Sons of Anarchy, even Sons of Anarchy is a, is a, is a Western retelling of a Shakespeare movie. Yeah. Set in the world of bikers. Yeah. That's what it is. And that's, I think that's what I like is a Western. It's on its face. Doesn't have to be horses and outlaws and one horse towns and and this kind of thing. It's a style of storytelling. But if you can put it in that old West setting and do it well, it's a lot of fun because you get like, there's something, there's something I really like about a set, a movie set like this, right? Where you can tell they made this on a back lot. But you can do that with a Western because the towns were so small and there were right, just, yeah. there were a few buildings. You can build it on a back lot. You set the whole thing in there and there's just a, a look and feel to it yeah. that when it's done right, I just love. And those spaghetti Westerns were a thing like, you know, it was what really helped launch Clint Eastwood. And um, it was like there was Django was another one, the old Django, yeah. not, not Unchained, yeah. but the actual just Django. Uh, once upon a time in the West. Although un- unchained, I mean, is Tarantino's lovely letter to yeah uh, Leone. So yep, that's true. Um, and so there's just something fun about those. Like I really, really like them. And this one just hits all the marks. I love Sam Raimi too. I like his style. Funny, funny question. Okay. Has had DiCaprio done a western? between Quick and the Dead and Django Unchained? I don't believe so. Um, in fact, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure he hadn't because he's only got 47 credits. So it's not like he's got, you know, hundreds the, of credits. Yeah. Um, but Django was 2012. And looking back through it, uh, I mean, the closest he gets is Gangs of New York. So no, he hadn't. Yeah, because he was he had done um, the Basketball Diaries came out the same year as the Quick and the Dead, which was I think another Sharon Stone produced movie, if I remember correctly. I think she hey, had. Hey, hold on now. Maybe somebody needs one. to look into the story of Leonardo DiCaprio and Sharon Stone. <laughs> going on out here? Yeah. <laughs> Thing is, he likes the younger girls, though. I mean, but listen, he may not have always. 
This when he true. was young. This is true. When he was young, he might have... Uh... But, no, he did Quick and the Dead, and then uh, his next big one was Romeo and Juliet, and then Titanic. Yeah. Um, Man in the Iron Mask, The Beach, which is an underrated movie. I like that one a lot. Never watched that movie. It's weird. Not bad at the list. But I, I very much liked it. And then Gangs of New York, uh, Aviator, The Departed, uh, Blood Diamond is another really good one. That was one I talked yes. about last week. Because Jaimon I did love I did love Blood Nine. Uh but yeah, no, he hadn't done a Western until uh Django. I mean does Django Unchained oh. and then what is it, seven years later he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's playing an actor who used to be in a Western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um Great movie. Great movie. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good stuff. Uh I mean just up and down this cast. Also, I have to mention cast member. Um he played Ratsy who was uh, kind of Herod's little lackey. Uh, he was the one always pushing mm-hmm. court around. Is played He's by... the one that got shot in the end, right? Yes. He shot him like at a distance at the end? Yep. Told him to get out of town. He had 20 seconds. And then like a minute and a half goes by before he turns around and shoots him. I think like the trivia that I read was yeah. that uh, the actor had to do run a lap to be in the same spot when uh, when he actually turned around because they, they did like a long take or something. But... But Ratsy is played by an actor who was also in, uh, I always remember him in Ace Ventura Pet Detective as Woodstock. He has one scene where he's like the little technical guy that helps him find the fish. Uh, He helps him find the the dolphin and all that. But he's played by an actor who has the greatest stage name I've ever heard. Rainer Shine. Yeah. It is is a fantastic (laughs) stage name. It It is on that level with Rip Torn. Of just like yeah. it's obviously a stage yeah. name, and I love every second of it. Like Rainer Shine, he's been in a lot. I'm I'm looking at his credits right now. He's been in a lot of things, mm-hmm. and the thing that I remember him from now is he was in a in a really good episode of The West Wing called In Excelsis Deo. He plays a homeless man who oh, okay. has a kind of a large part in the plot of that that episode. Uh, but he's yeah that I mean great list of things he's been in yeah yep uh, my cousin Vinny the rookie um, but Ace Ventura is the one I always remember him in because it's the scene where Ace has to go in he has to knock on the door and then give the password of New England clam chowder and he goes inside there and it's the guy with like he's wearing two pairs of glasses and he's got all the computer screens and he's like. It's a completely silly character, but I just always remember him from it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and and I and his voice—he's got a very distinct voice. It's kind of a little nasally, um, and there's just something to it. And I also—I forgot—the uh, first gunfighter to lose in the movie in this movie is um, uh, the Swede uh, Gutson, and he's played by Sven Ol Thorson, who we just talked about last week in gladiator because he was in gladiator as tigris he was the gladiator that uh that maximus fights with all the tigers around them and he had the the helmet that had like the mask he's the one down. that came out of retirement right yes yep that's him um okay. and i had completely completely forgotten he was in this movie and he pops up in that early scene as you know the swedish national champion and then he's only in the one gunfight but He's another one of those uh he's a like a stunt actor character actor that will pop up in movies. 
usually playing a giant because the guy is huge. Like he was a, I mean, I, th- I want to say he's like six four, six five, bodybuilder or former bodybuilder. Um, he doesn't look it in this movie at all. That's the one thing. They don't play up his size. But I just thought that was cool that I talked about him last week and he shows up in this movie. So we got him Here's and Russell Crowe. Here's a fun Crow. fact about him. He's been in 15 Arnold Schwarzenegger movies uh, as either a stunt person or an actor. I think, if I remember right, they had a pretty good friendship. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of the gunfights, they were great. The the gunfights yes. in this were awesome. Yes. And so here's again is that that Sam Raimi thing which I started to touch on that I love his style because it was this was very much done in the spaghetti western style, um, but it had a lot of Raimi touches to it. So like spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns would always have the showdown where you'd get a wide shot and then it would the next shot would be zoomed in and then zoomed in further and you'd get that back and forth as you zoom in on somebody's eyes and stuff like that. Right. Sam Raimi will do that, but he'll have everything push in at the same time and he'll throw in like a Dutch tilt and he'll make it look weird. Like he, like he would do in uh dark man or army of darkness or something like that. So it had that touch to it, but he also wanted to make all of the gunfights feel different. So there's every one of them is a little bit different in the way it's shot and the way it's presented. Um, whether it's like, the long buildup and then the gunfight or almost no buildup and the gunfight happens. The one with um, Lady and Eugene where it's them fighting in the rain, which is the only time that happens. Um, and we don't even get a buildup for that. It literally just hops in partway into it and they're just shooting at each other running down the street. Right, which yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I guess was the hardest one to film, probably because of all the rain machines and mm-hmm. having to, you know, more, more than likely do multiple takes because, man, that rain was coming down. You know, I thought that gunfight was a little odd because to me, it made it seem like she wasn't a very good shot. Yeah. Well, she's never portrayed as being a great shot that I remember. Um, but I can see what you're saying. Like, because how many times? Is it, well, she has to fire how many times? I don't remember now. Um. I, don't, I mean, she didn't reload. Um, That's true. No, I thought about but that. But I feel like she used all six of her bullets. She, now, granted, she shot him in the crotch, and she <laughs> shot him... Uh, she shot him in... The arm. She, she got him in the shoulder. She shot him in the, the crotch and the, uh, in the shoulder. That was not the kill shot. No, that but wasn't... But I feel like she missed a few of them, too. So the kill shot was when she went back inside to get the drink. Yeah, and then he she showed left, yeah, up. She left him alive. He came back in. Yeah. Which then that shot and then the shot where she saves court mm-hmm. were very precise shots. Right. And like, I yeah. felt like, you know, they originally didn't want to let her into the, into the, into the competition. And then she saves court. And I think I, I felt like they looked at her shooting. And they were like, oh, this woman can really shoot. Let's let her in. But then I don't know. I, yeah. I just kind of felt like, like her shots should have been a little more precise to kind of keep that build up, but yeah, no, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, I'd have to watch it again to really kind of dissect that. I remember just thinking like, good Lord, they're just going like, it's not even a, a competition thing. She just hates this guy so much 
She's so yeah. disgusted by she him. Wants some, she, she wants him dead. So maybe that but, was part of it. Maybe it's that, like, it was flying into that rage. I also thought it odd that she left him. Like, she didn't kill him. Like, she was in the rage. She wanted him dead. She was right to want him dead. Like, mm-hmm. he's out here raping young children and whatnot. But then she leaves him. And, he, you know, he makes the mistake of being like, I'm, I'm not through with you. And, well, <laughs> well yeah. then she was <laughs> through with him. For him. But, no. yeah. And I, I get somewhat where they were going with that and, and the whole idea of she never killed anyone and she couldn't bring herself to kill someone even though she was in all that anger. But, like, by that point, we that had sort of... That wasn't true either. Right. We had crossed that bridge already. So <laughs> you're right. You're right in that it does feel a little bit odd. Um, oh, but just, okay. So, so you got all these different, uh, these different gunfights and I love the way they go down, but I also like that idea of those, those giant bullet holes and yeah, yeah, yeah. the way that they would portray those, whether it was in the hand, whether it was the one into, uh, Keith David's head, um, that you get a camera shot through. That's a very Sam Raimi moment right there. The camera, yeah. the shot through that, or even at the end with, with Herod, where it's a, he gets shot and the the first thing we see is him from the neck up mm-hmm. and then it's either a cut or a pan down to his shadow i think it was a cut and it's his shadow but with a hole a bullet hole in the shadow yeah. that I mean, was they, just they like, used big bullets back then yeah they did i mean you um, figure it was probably either 357 or maybe even like a 44 yeah there was there was a lot of 45s yeah um, but I love that because, and that's sort of what gave this, the, the slightly lighter tone feel that I was talking about earlier on where it's like, it's not a light movie, but that idea of these ridiculous looking bullet holes that aren't really realistic. Right. Changes the tone of it just a little bit from something like Tombstone or Unforgiven that are grittier and more real to life. Right. Um, that that's that Sam, that's a Sam Raimi thing that he would do. Like he does horror, but he does horror in a way that kind of also makes you chuckle. Like you see, yeah. you see that shot of Herod's shadow, and then you realize there's light coming through the bullet hole. You, you can't help but laugh a little bit at that because right. it's just yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. it's silly, it's cartoonish. Um, I mean, even when even when uh, the kid dies, like there's a level of of levity to like that whole oh man shit that was fast you know what i mean yeah, like yep and even like dicaprio in his the way he starts kind of sobbing and like i don't want to die yeah. is it's it's sad it's affecting but it's also just a little bit too much and a little silly you know what it reminded me of was um i can't think of the guy's name that plays spider-man um, but uh, at the end of Infinity War, you know, oh, he's yeah, kind of yeah. when he's kind of fading, like that's what that made me think of was like kind of like the dramatic way that he like he's going out, like that's that's what I thought of with the kid Tom, dying, like that. Tom Holland, yeah, Tom Holland, the, yes. the I don't want to go, yeah, yep, yeah, a little bit of that. Uh, it's just I just loved I loved um. You had the the gunfight with Court and uh, was it running? Not Running Bull. Um, what was his name? The oh, Spotted Horse. Man. Spotted Horse. Uh, where he's like Spotted Horse is like you cannot be killed by a bullet, which apparently not one. 
it takes one into the head to finally put him down. And even that took it, took its time. Right. But, uh, like that, that one was a, again, it was a little bit different from the others. And instead of it being one shot, uh, it, they drew that out and then you got court trying to get a bullet from somebody. And here's the blind kid searching through all his bullets to find the, um, the gun and throw it, you know, or find the bullet that's right for the gun that'll fit. Right. Um, so I, I loved that. Meanwhile, <laughs> here's spotted horse just firing wildly, which, so this was something that I thought about a lot on this watch through all this gunplay is going on, all these shootouts in the street, people firing off guns in the saloon, uh, at the beginning and all of this kind of stuff. Not one person caught a stray bullet anywhere in this movie. Yeah. It's like the yeah. townsfolk were immune to bullet fire. <laughs> it was amazing because there would be shots where they're setting up a gunfight and, and uh, Horace would be like, all right, the street is yours. And you look and here's a shot of one of the gunfighters and like a half dozen people standing behind him. It's like, you don't know. None of those people want to be there right now. They want to spread out. Right. Cause <laughs> and so it just, it cracked me up every time I'm like, oh, man, in real life, there's so many people getting shot in this movie <laughs> just left and right. When they're shooting in the saloon, uh, when he's, when he's firing off, when they got court on the chair, Right, yeah, yeah, and uh, and they're like shooting right at people. There's people behind there, and, uh, and in the stairs, and I guess there's no second floor or nothing above that area. Wasn't they were the hotel above it? See, that's what I thought, but I think maybe that front part was kind of a cathedral ceiling. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So it might not have been. But still. They put a lot of faith in the strength of two by fours, and <laughs> it was uh, whatever it was strong <laughs> timber is what that was. Right. Yeah. Cause I just, I couldn't help myself. I'm like, Oh man, the realistic, the realism guy in me right now is just having a field day. Like, come on. But you know, his movie suspend some disbelief. Enjoy it. Um, just a little, just a little, disbelief. just a little bit. We did get, and again, it was sort of that, uh, that first round of gunfights was mostly done through a montage, which I get for pacing, but I also, was a little bit of a bummer because it would have been great to see a couple of these characters. And so if I have a complaint about this movie, it's not even a complaint about the movie. I just love the world building they did in this story. And I want more of that. I want to expand it. Like, I think this would make a great, like limited run comic series. Yeah. Where you could have, you could have an issue dedicated to all these different kind of main characters. You've got Cantwell, you've got, scars you can tell all their backstories in these comics leading up to the movie um all that kind of stuff where we can just learn more about them and i, th I think that would be really cool i talk a lot on the especially on this show about like movies that would make great you know series today but mm -hmm. i and this would but i i think like that comic series would just be cool to have like here's what led up to the quick and the dead and you can do all these different people and then you can dive in a little bit more to some of the backstories and flesh them out some. I thought this movie could have been 120 minutes. It could have. Like, I, I don't, and and I'll say like I don't remember what the what the general length of movies was in '95, um, and maybe 120 just wasn't something that seemed to be on the table back then. But I I felt like the movie could have been longer. It's one of those where. There's a school of thought by a lot of people that anything longer than an hour and a half is too long. 
I know I have had conversations with people who have told me that. They're like, that movie's more than an hour and a half long. I don't want to watch it, which I don't get. But I'm also one that will sit down and watch a three and a half hour movie and I don't care. So I'm weird. Yeah. I understand that. But yeah, give me the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings. That's what I watch. That's all I watch. Um, but I do think, I think a movie needs to be as long as it needs to be to tell its story. Mm -hmm. And if the pacing is good, I don't care how long a movie is. Yeah. I really don't. Because if the pacing mm -hmm. is good, you're invested in, and I remember coming out of a movie like the green mile is my, is the example I like to give. I went and saw that in the theater when it debuted and I yep. walked out of the movie and I was like, there was no way that was a three hour long movie, but it was because yeah. the pacing was so good on it. This one paced really well and it fit the hour and 45 minutes they gave it, but you could have easily tacked on 15 to 20 minutes to this yeah. movie. And it would have been fine. And it wouldn't have hurt because you get to, you get to learn more and know more about some of the smaller characters and even your main characters like Ellen, like court, because again, court is a character we know so little about. Um, that would just be great to learn more and to have just that little bit more. It reminds me a little, did you see bullet train yet? Yes. I just, and I actually just bought it. Okay. Uh, this week. Yeah. Yeah. Great. movie. Bullet train is great. And bullet train does this type of thing really well, where it's got that ensemble of crazy characters yeah. And you get a little, I felt Bullet Train almost at a couple of moments, it was like, well, we didn't necessarily need that. It works. Like, we didn't need Bullet the Bullet Train is a spaghetti western in a lot of ways. It is. Uh, it's a lot like, Bullet Train reminded me of um, Smoke and Aces a lot. Yes. And, yes. and those Another are, yeah, those are both very, very much the spaghetti western, the sort of all the outlaws coming into town to go after one guy. Mm -hmm. Um type of thing or in bullet trains case it's going after like a briefcase but same right. same idea um yeah. and quick in the dead sort of has that in a way because court is brought there against his will but he's there because of herod ellen is there because of herod the kid is there because he lives there but he's also there because of herod um yep. cantwell is there because of herod he's he's paid and that's, again, that's that backstory I want to know. Like, okay, he was in the army. He's a sergeant, but he's not a sergeant anymore. He still goes by that, but he's a mercenary. He's just a yep. gun for hire. So there's a backstory I want to learn. Um, and he's there for her. Like, Ace is the only one in town that we know of. Ace and Scars are the only, like, names we know of that aren't there because of Herod, like, a vendetta of any kind. Ace is just going around, you know, making a name for himself. And uh, and Scars apparently just goes there because the feds don't find him <laughs> until yeah. they do and put him back in jail. But you know, it's just one of those uh, one of those really cool. I love that structure of of a story, and I thought it was great. And we didn't mention Gary Sinise. Yeah, this is pre or right around. Forrest Gump, so like Gary Sinise hadn't blown up to become a big star, but it's a pretty good get to have him for that small of a role, but an pivotal one, a very important yeah. role that I think you got to have. You got to have an actor that can give you something emotional in that moment, and that's what he he delivered a, a very authentic uh, emotion in that moment where he's trying to and oh I I forget that scene so much. Because we get the flashback. 
the movie does that great thing I like, which is showing us our flashback and then expanding on it every time. So we get a little bit yeah. more as we go. A little bit more, yeah, yeah. And uh and the final the final version of the flashback is heart wrenching because of what oh, she yeah. went through. It's yeah. just rough. And Gary Sinise helps to sell that. And there again, there's there's that kind of I want to know more about the story. So after that happens to Ellen and she goes through that with her father, what happened to her for the next twenty five years or however right. long it's supposed to be? For for her to hold that grudge against Herod and obviously learn how to handle a gun and learn how to do things, but Herod to have no clue who she is. So she right. never made an attempt on him. Like that's there's a a couple of issues of a comic I want right there. Let me ask you, did you get the sense that the doctor knew who she was the whole time? Oh yes. Yes, I absolutely got that sense. He knew he knew okay. who she was the moment she stepped into town. Right. Um which and he was I forgot to mention him too. That was uh where is his name? It was his last major movie, Roberts Blossom, who if he didn't look super familiar at the in the moment, uh, if you've seen Home Alone, you know who he is. He was the uh the old man with the salt in Home Alone. Uh, Mar- Mr. Okay. Marley. Uh, and he was an actor. He, he lived until, uh, 87 years old, passed away in 2011. Uh, but this was one of the last major movies that he made. Um, he did, uh, like a couple of TV, uh, TV series appearances and that was it. This is kind of the tail end of his career. But yeah, he definitely knew who she was like the second she walked into town, which is crazy to think about. But I've met, I, I say that and then, and this is a story I've told before, but I was working in. Uh, a retail store, an Apple store. And my kindergarten teacher came into the store and I was helping her out and she recognized me without me saying a word. She just stopped for a second. She looked at me, kind of gave a quick little head tilt and then knew exactly who I was. I had not seen this woman in probably 30 years. The last time she had seen me, I was in elementary school. I am now six foot four. I have this huge beard, and she knew exactly who I was. So every time I make this joke, did you about, recognize her? I recognized her. Oh, okay. Uh, but she got to recognizing. She got to saying something to me before I had a chance to, because I was just kind of helping. I didn't want to, right? Like, because I, my assumption was she's not going to know who I am. You know, it's been it's been so long, and she was a teacher for decades. So it's right. one of the, so when I see that happen in a movie now, I'm like, okay, it's not as far fetched as I thought. Like these right. people yeah, do yeah, exist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he totally knew who she was, and and I like Robert's Blossom. I, he he had a, a very grandfatherly feel to him. Yeah, uh, and especially in this, and I love like he's the town doctor, and when they when Herod changes the rules to all the gunfights are to the death, um, he just eventually gives up. Like at one point he walks out and I love the shot where it's just, I think it's, um, I want to say it's Cantwell and it, all you see is his feet and the doctor just walks out, looks over and just says, yeah, he's dead. He doesn't even check him. It's just like, yeah, guy's dead. I'm not, uh, I'm not even going to waste my time. Um, I just, I love that. There's something about that made me chuckle. I'm like, yeah, he, he realizes there's no point. No um, point. And then, uh, of course, the dragon. When they drag away scars, he's got to make the comment of like, "This guy just—we got to bury him deep. He smells." 
This was also uh, the 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 um, mortician or the the undertaker when she's riding into town at the beginning of the movie. He's got one line where he says, "You know, five eight, right?" I'm never wrong. That was Woody Strode. This was his last movie. Uh, he was another another one of them character actors that would pop up in a lot of stuff. And this was the last movie he made. So for some reason, this this ended some careers. <laughs> I mean, granted, they Maybe. were. You know, 60, they 70. They spring chickens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're in their 70s by that point. Um, now, this movie was just fun. Like, there's a fun atmosphere to it that I really just yeah. can get behind. Uh, and whether you're a Western fan or not, I think you can find something to enjoy in this. The music is great. The music. It's Alan Silvestri that did the music. And what I've found about Alan Silvestri over the years is he does really good film scores that fit the movie really, really well but you don't think about outside of the movie. Like the music for Predator, for instance. The mm. first Predator's score fits so well. It just, the the slightly science fiction-y sort of idea, and he's got like this, this just really cool score, but I never think of it outside of watching the movie and how much I like it in the movie. It's not like my love of uh, the score to Jurassic Park or the score to The Lord of the Rings where I, I will put those albums on and listen to them while I'm doing stuff. I don't think to do that with a lot of Alan Silvestri uh, scores, mm. which is a bummer because the guy did a lot. Uh, Back to the Future 3 was him, and I think he might have even done the first Back to the Future. Um, but I liked the music in this movie. It fit all the scenes really, really well. Uh, oh, he did, uh, well, Avengers. Um, is him Forrest Gump? Did he, he did. Yeah. Uh, he did uh, Avengers Endgame. He was a composer. Oh. Um, the Avengers movies all had good music. Yeah, and that is that is one that is a uh, a score or he did all of them that Avengers theme that I do think about outside of the movie. He did all four Avengers movies. Okay. I mean, he's got 140 credits as a composer. Like he's he works. Um, what was it? I think I read in 1990. Yeah, so in 1990 he had uh, Back to the Future Part Three, The Young Guns, and Predator Two. All in the same year. It's pretty good. He did Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Was hey, him? that's, that's a, classic. That is. He's got a lot. Yeah, some of these I forgot about. And things you wouldn't think of, like Father of the Bride. He did the music for that. Uh, or Fern Gully was him. That's got some good music in it. Yeah. So, Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> he did Grumpy Old Men and then comes right back around, does Clean Slate and Forrest Gump. It's just a weird... He also did The Mummy Returns. Oh. So, you know, he's he's done quite a bit and and I like him as a composer because again, he just he's I don't want to say he's a like like the Gene Hackman of composers, but it's sort of that same thing where like you put him in something, you get Alan Silvestri to do the music, you're going to get solid music. And yeah. it's going to fit what you're doing. And it's kind of like when you would cast Gene Hackman, you would get good work out of Gene Hackman, whatever it was. So, I like that. Reindeer Games? Completely forgot. That's a great that movie. That's one I got to watch again. It's been, I think, 22 years since I've seen it. A very young Charlize Theron. 
well, in that movie. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> not a hard sell at that point, right? No, not really. I think, I think Gary Sense uh, is in that movie too. That's because uh, that's Affleck, right? Affleck and yeah. yeah, he is. Look at that. It's a pretty good cast. Affleck, Sinise, Theron, Mark Atchison. I like him. Isaac Hayes. All right. <laughs> oh, that's right. He is. In, I forget what he's doing in that movie, but yeah. Uh, so I did capture a few clips from this because there are, there are some good ones. Um, they might not be the things you're thinking of, but I got to play a few of them. So this first one is Mark Boone Jr. And it's the only one of his I captured, but you know, most of what he did in the movie was kind of growl and grunt. Uh, but I loved this exchange because this is right as he walks up for the first time. He just comes walking out of nowhere. Right, no, that okay. So this scene is great because it's a long take where he rides up on the horse, gets off the horse, walks into the saloon, and then a guy comes flying out the doors who immediately scrambles, gets up, hops on the horse, and rides away. Yes. And it's all one take. Um, and then as he's as he's running to the horse to ride away, uh, Scars comes back out, pulls a gun, and shoots him off the horse down the street. And I was like, that's cool. Like, that's just a, a well-staged shot. Um, yeah. And then for him to turn around and walk up to Sharon Stone, and he just says, You're pretty. You're not. <laughs> And you can hear you can hear the flies buzzing around him. Yeah. And oh, I just she just tells him off right away, and it cracked me up. You're pretty. Well, he's got that big scar coming down the one side of his face. He looked like that, he smelled bad. That line made me think of something that kind of I thought was odd. Sharon Stone seemed to be entirely too clean. <laughs> For, for her line of work, there's that scene where, like, when she wakes up in the kid's bedroom, mm -hmm. and like, you know, she's wearing what looks like a somebody like a man's shirt that's got like a cut in the front and it's kind of short, and so you can kind of see a lot of her. It's like, there's no way at this time she would be this clean. And the funny thing is, you mentioned that I thought the same thing. But the rest of the movie doesn't have that. Like, a lot of times in early westerns, everything looked too clean because that was just the way you shot movies. And then over right. time, we started getting more kind of grimy look and sort of that. Oh, what would this actually look like instead of instead of doing a stage play of a of a western? And this movie does have that because you've got you know people with terrible looking teeth and you've got yeah. grimy looking. Like Court spends the whole movie; he's just covered in this thin layer of dust at all times. Um. But yeah, she just looked like she just walked onto a the a commercial for like shampoo all the right, time. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was funny because I thought that same thing. Like she's just remarkably clean and has remarkably white teeth and like very clear skin. Uh, all always. So, but she's purdy. Um, and then this was the the final moment of scars. He would have to bury this old man deep. The hell out of he stinks something off. <laughs> it's raining. Ah, oh, so good. Um, I mentioned it earlier, but this was the introduction of Keith David, and I cut down the pause uh, just because it was it was kind of long. But this one, Sergeant Cantrell. Correctly. 
How do you spell that correctly? <laughs> oh, man. And with that voice, too, it's just. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Listen, that voice is it's unmistakable. Absolutely. When I saw Nope. Like, have you seen Nope? I have not yet. OK. I he's in to. Nope. I won't I won't give any more uh, description of why he's in Nope. But I thought it was him. And then when his character started talking, I was like, oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. That is Keith David. There are voices that you will recognize immediately. It doesn't matter. It happened to me in, um, well, actually, two movies. So uh, did you ever see Phone Booth with Colin Farrell? Yes. Okay, so in that movie, it's Kiefer Sutherland on the other end of the phone. Mm -hmm. And I knew throughout the entirety of the movie that it was Kiefer Sutherland. I never had a question about it. Uh, a friend of mine was like, I didn't realize it was him until they showed him at the end. I'm like, how do you not? It's his, his voice. Like He, he sounds didn't watch like, 24. He didn't watch 24. <laughs> and there was 24. And also, uh, at the same time, there were a bunch of ESPN commercials for like hockey. And Kiefer Sutherland yes. did the voiceover for those. Yeah. So it's like yeah. his voice was burned into my brain. And the other one was in Ocean's Eleven, there is a scene towards the end where the SWAT team comes in. Mm-hmm. And the, it's it's all of the Ocean's gang with their masks down uh, on the the SWAT masks. And that's when they're walking the money out of the casino. And one of them speaks, and it's very clearly Brad Pitt. And his voice is distinct enough that I was like, I had figured out what was going on by that point, that the SWAT team mm-hmm. wasn't who they said they were um, because of his voice. So it's just like one of those things. You hear those certain voices. And Keith David's got a voice that, I mean, if you watched – anything animated in the 90s Keith David was in there somewhere like he did so much Keith voice David work. did static the static shot cartoon I think so I know he did gargoyles I know he did a lot of uh English dubs for anime mm. uh, I remember him distinctly in like uh Princess Mononoke he's he does a role in that like he was one of those stable of people that you needed something done you called up Keith David and uh and it's just that voice, like that's a voice that commands respect. You yeah. you you sit up and listen. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was that was great. Um, <laughs> I had to capture this because this was so ridiculous. It really, it, it feels like it should only exist in a movie like this by Sam Raimi, and yet there's a part of me that thinks this was real in the old west too. And this is when the guy that challenges court to the first round. And then he says, I brought my boys. They don't get to church much. And the one kid just yells, Daddy's going to kill you, preacher. And then the four boys rush court and just start oh, yes. beating on him. <laughs> like, that felt like it shouldn't, it, like, it felt so ridiculous that it was almost true. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. No, it was I so could silly. see that. And it just made me laugh. And so I had to capture that. My, my daddy's going to kill you, preacher. And I love the part then when Sharon Stone comes up and like punts one of the kids and they're like, what are we, dad? It's like you, sir, y'all were just jumping a poor guy. Like, don't go crying for your daddy now. Grabbing one kid and grabbing another one. And then, yeah, she just punts one of them. Just, just gets him right out of there. Oh, um, here is, this is Robert's, um, the doctor. And it was his one line. And I just, this moment in the movie was meant to 
This is when Ellen is trying to leave and she goes to the graveyard and she's looking for her father's grave and he shows up and he's like, you know, they, they smashed the headstone, they moved him, um, they burned his body, all of that. When he says this. There are good people. They're just cowards like you. And it's a, it's a real emotional moment, right? There's good people here, but they're all cowards like me. It felt like we needed a little bit more build for that. That's where that extra 15 minutes could have helped of like giving us some more of this emotional beat to, yeah. to build that up. Cause that's that, that's the moment where she's stealing her resolve and decides to come back and not yeah. give up and run away. Um, but it's a great delivery uh, there. It also, it also gives a little better context to that scene where Keith David's character is introduced. Yes. Because you realize they're paying, you know, like, and I can't remember if that scene is before or after Sergeant dies when she's in the graveyard. It's after. It's after. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that also illuminated that too, because he kind of explains it. Um, But yeah, I, I actually liked it that scene a little more contextually to Sargent's character than I did Gene Hackman's kind of monologue about, although that monologue fits, it's very good for the story. It gives you a lot about the Herod character. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, This is Leo and I've already said it once, but got to have Leo say it. Shit, that was fast. It's good. It's a, it's, that is the proper reaction to that moment. Um, and, uh, we just, I mean, I gotta, I gotta reiterate, he was 21 years old making this movie. Okay. At at 21 years old, I was not anywhere close to that level of like anything. Uh, Mm. certainly not acting on a set with, I mean, Gene Hackman, Sharon Stone, and granted, nobody really knew who. Russell Crowe was at the time, but to say that you were on a set with those people is pretty impressive yeah. at 21 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good start. And it really shows you how good he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at what he had done before. And I think the only, like what's eating Gilbert grape. Yeah. Which he and did poison get, Ivy. He did get an Academy award, uh, nomination for what's eating Gilbert grape. He's very good in that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's like what's eating Gilbert Grape, and uh, he had filmed the Basketball Diaries, which I think was released the same year as this movie, and and okay. that is one that he's very good in as well. But it was early on; he was still just a kid and and making a name for himself, and and that's that's the great thing here is you've got you got your veterans and Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman, right, and bringing in people like like uh, Lance Henriksen and Tobin Bell and Keith David, who have been around for a while. And then DiCaprio and Crow are that, that newer generation kind of coming in. Even though Russell Crow was 31, 30, 31, he wasn't a kid, but right. to American audiences, he was brand new. You know, And for him to go from this to virtuosity to like The Insider and Mystery Alaska, and then he, and then it just keeps going, Gladiator and and a beautiful mind and so on and so forth. Like he's had a hell of a career. Yeah. And it got started in the U S here. And I'm not sure that I think Russell Crowe has ever done a bad movie. 
I mean, Virtuosity might be the worst movie he's ever done. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's varying accounts. Like some people didn't love uh, what was it? Um, the Mummy uh, that he did with Tom Cruise. Oh, I forgot he was in that. I, and, you know what? That movie is a fun time. I rewatched that not too long ago. Um, because I like uh, Sophia Butella. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think the problem the problem that I I have is like it was it was trying to start off on like step three of building a universe. Yeah, and that's that's where it fell apart. But I mean, you look at some of his other stuff. The nice guys. Um, I guess people didn't love Noah. Nice guys is hilarious though. Yeah, oh, Nice Guys is. Nice Guys is good stuff. Um, Robin Hood was another one that was that people didn't love. And it's weird. It feels like it feels like Russell Crowe went through this period of time where he was a little too self-serious. And it feels like the Nice Guys was where he started letting a little more of his looser side into his movie roles, if that makes yeah. sense. Although he had done it earlier with, I mean, he was in The Man with the Iron Fists. So, like, obviously he knows how to just have fun in a movie. Right, right. Um, but it was this uh, this period of time where he was doing, you know, 310 to Yuma, American Gangster, Body of Lies. Like, there's three great movies back to back. Yep. Um, and then Robin Hood, The Next Three Days, um, Les Mis. State of Play was pretty good. Oh, yeah, State of Play. I, I am not a huge fan of Noah as a movie, mm-hmm. but I think he does a great job in it. So, you know, I, I'm with you in that he doesn't really, he's also not had a lot. He hasn't had a lot of bad movies. Let's put it that way. He's had a couple yeah. that were, that were like lukewarm. Like I didn't hate Robin Hood. I thought it was fine. Yeah, I enjoyed that movie. Yeah. You know, it, it was, but I'm a sucker for a Robin Hood movie anyway. Like in some ways I thought that movie was better than the Costner movie. In and a, I like the Costner movie. So in a lot of ways it is. I think part of it is that the initial idea, if I remember correctly, Ridley Scott wanted to do was the Robin Hood tale, but from the point of view of the Sheriff of Nottingham. And it ended up not working out that way and everything got reworked into what we got. But I feel like the the initial idea was much more interesting to do Mm. it that way. But I will say that there there are certain elements of the Ridley Scott Robin Hood that are better than the Costner movie. It doesn't have the camp that the Costner movie had though. And that's the thing that like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is still watchable now, not because it was a great epic action film, but it was good enough at that. And it has that campiness to it. The, the over the top performance of Alan Rickman. Uh, and you know, the, the silly, some of the silly humor, um, that helped to make it enjoyable, you know, years and decades on. But yeah, I mean Russell Crowe, he doesn't have he doesn't have a lot of stinkers, let's put it that way. There's not there's not those movies that you're just like, "Ugh, good lord, he was in that piece of crap." Um Right. Because he, you know, he he chooses things well. Um I do have a couple Gene Hackman clips. Got to play those because it's Hackman. Two of them um actually come back to back. Uh the first one was when and this is a great introduction to him. This is after he's come walking in to the to the saloon and 
when um, Sharon Stone wants to enter the competition. So she says she's going to sign up, and we get this exchange. No women in quick rods against the rules. There's no rule against ladies. And like, okay, all right. So he doesn't he doesn't discriminate uh, if anybody can be in there. But then he immediately backs it up with uh, this backhanded compliment. You know, it, it ends up being a backhanded compliment because he backs it up with. It's just the women can't shoot for shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right. Well, now we know every we we know who we're dealing with. Like you immediately right, yeah. know who this guy is. Um, and then, uh, oh, this, so this was one I wanted to get because this is this is an example of what I was talking about where he can flip that switch and go super menacing on you in no time. And I loved this shootout uh because it starts off you don't realize that you're in the middle of a gunfight and because it's it's um ace and herod talking and the way they shoot everything it's all one shots up close so it feels like it's just the two of them having a conversation like he walked up on him on the street and they start talking yeah. and then all of a sudden you get that pullback and they're 50 feet apart and it's the gunfight and I was like, that's yeah. a cool way to set that up because you, mm-hmm. you're just not ready for it. Um, but it's when he said this that has that he went from zero to 100 on the menacing scale in the middle of this sentence. You see, I was the one that really killed the Terrence brothers. And I doubt if a lying little chicken shit like you was even in the same state. And it's that middle part where he, you, can, you can hear his mouth doesn't open all the way and he's like grinding his way through lying little chicken yeah. shit. That he just he just hates this guy so much because he's making up stories that he was that Herod knows the truth of and that bugs him to his core. And it's just like I'm watching that, I'm just like, oh it gives you chills almost. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. And then finally, if if Gene Hackman's in a movie, he's gonna yell at some point. And if he's gonna yell, it's like Nicolas Cage being in a movie and laughing. I'm gonna capture it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to capture Gene Ackman yelling. Because you clearly haven't got the message. This is my town. Like, to a, with a lesser actor, that's too much. And that yelling mm-hmm. doesn't work, and that's angry acting. But he does it so well. He yeah. just does it so well. Uh, and I mean, it fits. It fits. It fits the context of the scene. And that one's great, because that's that long monologue you were talking about, where... Yeah. And he starts it off, it was the clip I played at the beginning of the, the episode, he starts it off very calm, in that you know whole, I'm confused, where you people are getting all this money, and it ramps up. And by the end of it, he's just yelling. And, I mean, I was like, take the money, I don't, here, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, <laughs> sir, here, just take this and don't hurt me. <laughs> like, Forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, this, this is a great, I'm glad you watched this. I'm really glad that oh, we talked about too. this yeah. and that you got a chance to see this movie because I really feel like this is an under underrated, underseen movie. Like not enough people remember The Quick and the Dead. And it's unfortunate because it's a it's a fun little yarn uh, of a yeah. movie that just you can just kind of sit back, park your brain, and enjoy the Sam Raiminess of it all. Um yeah. he does he uses a diopter a couple times, um, which is a lens that has two focal lengths. So those shots where you would have somebody in the foreground in focus and somebody in the background in focus, that's what that, that's a dioptic lens. Okay. And I love, I love seeing those. That's a, you don't see them as much anymore. 
Um, but it's a very stylistic choice because it, at first your brain doesn't quite process what's going on. Um, and usually there's a line in the middle kind of straight down the frame that's out of focus. Uh, so it looks a little funky, but I love shots like that. And like, he uses that. And then I mentioned his push-ins and like Dutch tilts and all that kind of stuff that he does, or he'll do like low angle, a low angled shot that will push in and tilt at the same time. And it gives you this disoriented feeling. Um, but then he did, he did that with a push pull, like the, that's that jaws shot, you know, where the background it's the, it's the push the camera in while you're zooming out. And so the background moves as well. Um, but he did that with a, with a Dutch angle, with a tilt on it too, a couple times towards the end of the movie when everything's blowing up. That was just like, that's just cool. Like it, it's so weird and it, it's, it feels so off, but it feels so Sam Raimi. And like, for some reason he can do that and it not feel dumb. It should like, there's no reason a shot like that should work. It should feel almost amateurish, but it doesn't. For it's it's kind of like uh spike Lee and the, um, I forget what that it's it's the he does that shot on wheels where like your subject is coming forward and the 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 background is moving in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of a weird shot, but like you almost feel like oh, it's not a Spike Lee movie if you don't see that. Mm-hmm. If you don't see that shot in the movie. Yeah. Certain directors just have those signatures, right? Like mm-hmm. You, you don't feel like you're watching a Steven Spielberg movie if there isn't a shot of some people looking past the camera at something. Yeah. Or J.J. Abrams and his lens flares. And it's it's Raimi and these weird dolly shots and, like, odd angles to do stuff at, uh, which is what I loved about um, him bringing that into the MCU and Multiverse of Madness. There's moments in Multiverse oh, yeah. of Madness yeah. that has that, that horror feel to it that just works. It's that Raimi style of horror that he did in evil dead and army of darkness and dark man is another great example of it. I think I've ever watched dark man. Boy, if you, so it is, uh, like it's one of the better examples of nineties comic book films is dark man. Um, it's, it's way out there. It's crazy, but it's very Sam Raimi and it fits. It's R rated. It's dark. Um, the subject matter is pretty crazy, but like it's good. I, I really like it, and it's Liam Neeson. So Sam Raimi and Liam Neeson uh, doing Dark Man, the first one. Uh, the sequels are okay. They kind of start to run into the ground a little bit. I think they made three or four of them, um, but the wow. first the first movie's really good. So definitely right. recommend that. Um, but oh man, it's been great having you back on. I, I've just Thanks. I've just love it's. I, we, we're not going another two years. We're going to do this again sooner than that. Sounds good. Sounds because good. I'm always game to talk about movies. Awesome. A lot of my meetings at work devolve <laughs> into conversations about movies. I have a coworker who is, who's a movie fan and we're always talking about, you know, something to go see or, um, she is, I think she is a budding, uh, director. So, oh, or, or writer. I, I think, I think writing is more her passion, but, very cool. Well, definitely. Anytime we'll we'll get you back on here soon. Um, but you still have your uh, your show joystick and mouse going on, right? Yes, yes. It's it's just uh, it's just Don and I now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Alex had to step away, but uh, we we shoot every other week. Okay. Um. So we're actually recording tomorrow. Excellent. And uh, yeah. And it's good Check stuff. Us out. It, it, it's it's great video game news, and and you and Don are awesome. Uh, I've 
I've really liked getting to know you guys over the last few years, and I miss having Alex on the show. Um, but I understand why, and yeah, 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 yeah. you know, it, it is what it is. I'm One glad of these that... days, we're gonna draw him back into into something new. Definitely, um, you got to because the three of you had had a great chemistry with Joystick and Mouse. It was always a good. Yeah. The conversations were always great. So getting the three of you back doing a show together will be will be great. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here this week. This was super fun. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks for suggesting suggesting this movie because I pro- I would have probably not found it. Um, but now I'm also going to add uh, Unforgiven and Tombstone to my to my list of things. I'll let you know what I think. Excellent. I can't wait to hear about that. Um, so yeah, uh, this show I record live on Sunday nights. If you ever want to come and hang out in the chat, um, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, you can do that. The show comes out on Wednesdays, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to tvstravis.com to find, uh, you know, the, the way to subscribe in your favorite podcatcher. Um, you can also find on that site, uh, ways to support the show, whether it's, uh, Kofi, ko-fi.com slash TV's Travis, or you can go to Patreon now. Patreon.com forward slash WYHS. You can support this show for as little as a dollar an episode. Uh, You get episodes a little bit earlier, and there's some exclusive content that's only on Patreon. So definitely check that out, Uh, tvstravis.com. Next week, I have Sean Allred from uh, Cheap Seat Reviews coming on, and we are going to talk about, uh, it's a newer movie, and now for some reason my brain doesn't want to remember what it was. Oh, Shazam. I'm going to finally watch oh. Shazam. I haven't seen it yet. It's a good movie. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've heard good things about it. And so that's what we're doing next week. It's and a then... different take on a superhero movie. It's it's a little different than what I was expecting, but I, I very much enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So that's next week with uh, with Sean Allred from, uh, from the Cheap Seat Reviews. He's coming back on, and we're going to talk about that. So that's what's coming up. Um, so thank you for being here this week. Thank you uh, for listening this week, everybody out there. And uh, remember that, um, you know, enjoy your movies. There's a whole lot of great stuff to watch right now. And also be excellent to each other. There's been weight you haven't seen. Looks like you're having a pretty good time playing with yourself. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>